Welcome to the Live Your Spa Life Show. Spa life is where accomplishment and harmony coexist. Now, here's your host and Spa Life curator, Diane Halfman. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of the Live Your Spa Life Show. Spa life is a lifestyle that accepts that accomplishment and harmony coexist. The spa in spa life is for SPA, which is Seek Power Always, that power within you to do your deeper work here in the world. I am so honored to have my next guest here on the show, who is Mark Anthony Sutton, who was the co-founder of the second largest blood gang in California. His street experience led him to become the co-founder and director of the PBCG Project, also known as Partners Building Community Groups. And the PBCG is part of the NAACP Pasadena, California, which is a 501c3 federally exempt nonprofit. And Mark now leads as the criminal justice chairman, a cognitive behavior trainer, as well as a gang prevention, intervention, and violence interrupter expert. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here and it is a pleasure to meet you. Ah, thank you so much. A lot of people may think that we are a unlikely combination, me as a retired police officer and you a man of the streets. And I love your title now as violence interrupter and what you're doing now as far as you putting yourself out in danger again in the firing line to stand for people. And before we get into that, I'd love to kind of just go back so people understand, you know, your history and, and where you came from, because it's important to have people know Like, what are some of the things that you experienced and how they shaped where you are today? I want to start with my past. At the age of 12, um, started getting involved into the gang culture. I quickly adapted to it and became very, I would say, not successful, but very known and respected in the culture. In that culture, we started a gang that was called Pasadena Denver Lanes, which is a blood game, not necessarily just from Pasadena. And so from there, I eventually end up getting involved into an act where someone shot my brother and then I retaliated. And that that led me into prison where I did 26 years. And after uh, my release from prison, I was uh, became very active in my community with finding ways to defuse violence. Before my release from prison, I met a guy named Dan Tuccini. Dan is a uh, master trainer, and Dan was the guy who trained me in uh, cognitive work from prison. And then upon my release, Dan and I reconnected and I started participating in a few seminars with him since I've been out from prison conducting cognitive training. And so that really helped me to go back to my community and kind of give them some insight as to why, as gang members, we operate the way we operate. Some of them operate in a way where they're not even consciously aware, similar to how we do in life, just people go through life in general, functioning a certain way and not really connected to the basis of how they're functioning or why they're functioning like that. And so that's one of the things that I'm committed to doing, not just with gang members, but with people in general, just having a conversation with them about some of our automatic behaviors that's directly associated with upbringing, our culture, our belief system, and some of the life experiences that we've been through without knowing 
that those life experiences are influencing our everyday life. Right, right. Well, and I think that what's going to have people lean into this conversation even more is because we hear a lot of the statistics of especially someone who spends as much time as you did in prison and the affiliation with gangs and the mindsets that are behind those to be able to like 180, be able to literally be a force for good, to be able to shift that. Take us to the mindset of when you were in prison and you were able to really see how you could determine your future and how you could change your circumstances. Take us into the mindset that led you to look at things from a different perspective than when you grew up. For me, I lived in the gang culture as if I had no choice. And believing that I had no choice in the culture kept me trapped in it. It made me think that I'd have no way out. The most powerful thing that helped me transform my thinking was during a seminar in prison, Dan says something about how our thoughts are not us. Mm-hmm. He talked about how a lot of our thoughts have always been out there. They're just thoughts that's been out there in society, just in the atmosphere. And then he said that we are the observer and the deciders of our thought. And after he said that, it, it, it just provoked something in me to look into that further. And one of the things that I learned is a term called phenomenologic reporting. Phenomenologic reporting is when you pull yourself out of that moment where you're having that thought and you take a look at you, yourself having that thought and you recognize, one, what the thought is about, where it comes from, how the origin of it. What I learned is that a lot of my thinking wasn't necessarily about my environment. It was about me believing that I had no option in my environment. And when I realized that my thoughts were not me, so in other words, I don't have to act on the thought. I realized that I had a choice. I didn't have to live as if I had no choices. And when in that moment was like a big eye opener for me, and it felt like a big weight was lifted off of my shoulders because in the gang culture, when you grow up in a culture, there's a certain way that you think. So if someone says something to you, you got to react a certain way. If somebody does something to you, it's just this way we believe that we had to move in that culture. And then you have these automatic thoughts that was directly associated with the culture. So when I recognized that just because I had the thought didn't mean that I had to react to it, right? Because I grew up saying, okay, if I'm angry, then I have to do something with the anger. That means I have to become an anger for me, was associated with violence. So if I got angry, that means I had to do something violent, right? And that's the way the culture is set up. Is you know, there's a saying in the gang culture. It says, "Get down where you get mad at." So in other words, if you're mad in that moment at somebody, get down means you have to fight that person in that moment. That's a part of the gang language. Right. That's a part of the culture. So when you hear that automatically you thinking, okay, now because you didn't got mad or you got angry, you have to become violent. And so I recognize that I didn't have to do that just because that's what was dictated by the culture or just because that's what I was thinking in that moment. And a lot of the thinking was directly associated with the culture. Right. It's, it's almost like people who grow up 
in a racist environment, right? And as they grow up in a racist environment, it's what they were taught, it's what they were hand down from generation to generation. And they live as if they have no choice but to be racist, right? right? And, you know, there's a whole lot to come along with that. And then there's guys, I remember when I was in prison, I met a guy who was an Aryan. And he grew up believing that he had to hate black people, Mm. right? And him and I met in the prison system. His name was Steve. They call him Big Steve. And Steve, child got sick. He didn't want his child to die. And he loved his baby so much, he started praying and he became a Christian in the midst of him being in prison. And he came into the church asking people in the church to pray for him and his child. And me and a friend of mine sat down with him and started praying with him. Mm. And then Steve's child got better and started getting better. And Steve changed his life. And one day he came to the yard and he said, now, mind you, Steve is like six, four, big white guy, healthy. He came straight to the yard and said, Mark, I want to work out with you. Unheard of. So one He made a transition from being in, you know, in his mind, he was like, the only people who came to me and was there for me when I needed was a a black Christian guy. And at the time, the inmates had appointed me the pastor over the yard, Mm. right? This black Christian guy came into my life and prayed for my child and him and I start talking and we got really close. Mm -hmm. And after that, he was willing to put his life on the line. He came to the yard and worked out with me on the way pile. We lifted worked out together, but he just grew up believing that he had to be that way. Right. Well, I can see that's why they call you Big Preach. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Big Preach. Right. Absolutely. And I love this distinction that you're making in terms of we are not our thoughts. It's such an important thing. I mean, you and I have had the, the same impact training. And when you get really clear of the distinction between your emotions versus your commitments, And I know that that's one of the things that that now you've taken all of this life experience that you have, and you did reforms even in the prison themselves before you even got back out on the street. And one of the most challenging things, um, and I'd like for you to share about this, is coming back out, how you were able to rebuild that trust within the community, with law enforcement, with former gang members. It's like, there's a, a lot of expectations and a lot of those expectations are that you're going to fail when you come out. Like there's that expectation of that. How is it that you dealt with some of those things? It wasn't easy. I mean, here I am, the co-founder of the second largest blood gang in California. When I came out, first I had all my homeboys wanted me to have a meeting with them. Right. But after 26 years, the first thing they said is, you know, big homie, we need you to come to a meeting. And I said to them, I said, well, first off, whoever's inviting me to the meeting, one, don't care about me because I just did 26 years in prison. And why would I come to a meeting, a blood meeting? Right. And I said, and two, they're probably working for the police who's ever in that meeting and invite me and trying to get me locked back up. So I'm not coming to a meeting. That's the first thing. Now that The basis of that conversation was because one of the most powerful things that helped me during my incarceration was my vision. Mm -hmm. So I had a vision about what I wanted to do for my community and how I wanted to contribute to my community. The vision started from inside the prison. As you said earlier, 
I started this work inside the prison where I brought over 350 inmates together to have what we call a unity spread so that we can stop violence against each other in the prison system. And so when I came home, they were expecting me to be the person I was when I went to prison. And what brought me through that was my vision. It's the same thing I say to people. My vision and my belief, my vision had the power and the gravity to pull me through the challenging times. So when they asked me that, I said, I'm not going to do it. Now, they didn't like it because here I am coming out. Not only am I talking about doing something different, Mm -hmm. I'm talking about pulling people from them who they wanted to use on the front line, gang banging or selling drugs or whatever they want to use it for. So here I come with a different idea saying, no, send them to work. We want to get them working. If they have a business idea, let's support their vision for their business ideal to get them off the streets. Right. And in the midst of that, they threatened, they tried to get authorization to kill me. Right. And when they couldn't get authorization to kill me, they tried to sabotage my character by saying that I was a snitch for the police, mm-hmm. saying that I was working for them. Right. You know, it's interesting how people play against based on what their own agenda is. They can play you on both sides, right? And that can happen with rival gang members. It can happen with the police, you know, all these different supposed conversations that are our lack of communication mm-hmm. that people have, you know, what is their agenda that they're coming from and having some of those conversations. So when you talk about your vision leading you through, what was your vision in prison for the next step of your life? My vision was to one, start a nonprofit organization. And that organization would specifically have individuals who were once founders of these gangs in California and get them to use their influences in a positive way from inside the prison system. Because the organization I started, I started initially in prison. And then I continued the organization when I came out, which is the PBCG that we're talking about today. And the objective was to get them to use because a lot of people don't understand how much influence prisoners have over the streets. And so I know how much influence they have. So my objective was to get the ones inside the prison who wanted to use their influences in a positive way to stop violence on the street. So when I came home, the objective was one, get them involved two, get them job opportunities because I can't ask them to stop selling drugs and stop doing illegal things without giving them an option, get them a job. And then three, the ones who start their own businesses, get behind them and support their vision for their own business. And that's what we've been doing. We've been doing that. And now we're waiting to get a building to have a music studio, a media center and a vintage goods store so we can get them jobs, teach them how to do engineering in the studio and teach them how to get behind the camera and video the movies and the videos that they want to make for their music. So that's where we at now. Right. Well, and speaking of, of movies and music. You, know, you and I've talked about like the, the influence of that. And there, there's a lot of songs and things out there that glamorize the gang life, pimps and hoes, and, and you know, the whole street persona. How do you feel like that has influenced just gangs and kids in general? I remember initially, I recall Oprah Winfrey doing this show. And I think in the show, a guy, he was a news reporter. He called some, oh, the basketball player girls. Uh, nappy-headed hoes, right? And he got removed and everything. But the basis of the conversation, he was saying that that's what they call call them in the music. And the music is influencing the culture. Mm-hmm. 
And I thought about it initially. I was like, wait a minute, that's no excuse for you to do A, B, C, and D. What I realize now is that music has such an influence over these young people today. They can rap about a drug that they call lean. They can rap about lean. And then all of a sudden you start seeing young kids doing lean, Mm -hmm. right? They can rap about pills, right? Even though we know parents need to be actively involved, that's another part of it. But rappers and people who's rapping that type of music cannot excuse or cannot dismiss the influences that their music is having over the young people. It's just unrealistic to think that. I remember when Cardi B first came out, she came out with something and she used to say, oh, crew, oh, crew, right? Like it's the same. She would say, okay, but she would say, oh, crew. And all of a sudden, all these young girls start doing the same thing she was doing on her, you know, every time she talked. Right. So you can't ignore how much influences these artists have over our kids today. You just can't ex- ignore that. Right. They're role models. I mean, they're who they look up to. And, you know, the similar can be said for the gangs. And, you know, you and I have also talked about that, you know, a lot of people think of a gang and they think of drive-bys. They think about all the negativity and, and the violence that's brought. But a lot of things that actually attract kids to the gangs is that it is their, it becomes like their family, especially mm-hmm. if things aren't working within their own family. It's who they trust. It's who they go to. It's like their extended family. And so is there ways now that you're looking at that people can have this changing the affiliation of a gang away from the violent aspect of it and build upon the community of them being able to have that brotherhood and that support that they have? Can you take the violence out of it? Yes, you can. Right now, today, a lot of people don't know. I have friends who became L.A. sheriffs and they were also bloods. They were gang members, but they made the transition. They they still represented their neighborhood, but they wasn't out there actively going after Crips because it was the culture that they came from. I have friends that's in the military. They're in the military and they bloods. They're gang members, but they're not active gang members. And that's something... See, there's a difference between an active gang member and a non-active gang member. A non-active gang member is one that's working, paying bills, taxpayer, everything. But he grew up in the culture. He's a part of the culture. He's just not actively out there doing the violent acts that the culture is associated with. He's just not a part of that part of it. But he still, they have a day where they call Hood Day. Hood Day, all the old school gang members, everybody, they're grown. They have grandkids. They all come together mm-hmm. and they have a picnic. There's no shooting, no violence, anything. So that's a part of the culture. But then you have these active ones that's out there actively gang banging, shooting, killing. And that's what they do. It's like a difference. And so having that understanding that a lot of people just don't understand, that people just don't understand why they can gang bang. But I think you hit it on the nose where you said that, that brotherhood. My objective is to get them to make the transition to say, okay, you don't have to represent this by killing anyone or shooting anyone. You can have a building where you say, you know, like homeboys, because it got homeboys incorporation. Homeboys is the term that was used with gangs. But now you have homeboys incorporation, which is a, a multi-million dollar company now that makes bread and that has a bakery. They have their own store. They have a restaurant. They have all that, but it's called homeboys and homegirls. Right. So that's an example of how they can represent this culture without it being violent and make that transition. 
Right. I remember, uh, Dave Chappelle, the comedian, had said at one time that you you never get between, you know, a man and his livelihood. And it can be tricky where, you know, a lot of people don't look at the, you know, people in the gang, especially leaders in the gang. This is their livelihood that is being talked about. And so not everyone is for that change or that transition because there is that fast money. And I can remember, you know, when I worked in the streets and I would talk to some of these young kids and, and they would think like you said, where this is the only option for them to make the big money and they're going to have this big life and all of these things around that. So when you look at people who are currently in it and they, you know, people resist change anyway, that's, that's human nature. But for them to look beyond the fast and easy money that can be made on the street, how is it that you're going to kind of help them transition from what they've been used to to this other alternative? What I do is I focus on the ones that's ready to make the transition. Mm-hmm. See, And then when they make the transition, the ones that are still on the borderline is trying to decide if they want to make it. They see them making the transition. And so they say, okay, you know, the homie so-and-so now he got a job. He's making good money. We got to start somewhere. And that's where I start from there. And then I start working with the ones that's on the fence. The ones that's ready to make it, we reach them first. The ones that's on the fence, they're trying to decide which way they want to go. And one of the things that a lot of people don't understand also is that there's gang members who know that there's some of their homeboys that shouldn't be gang members. And so they steer them toward me. They out there trying to run with them. And they, they'll say to me, like, look, preach, he don't even need to be out here. I'm finna send him over there to you to get a job. And we'll just put, send him in another direction. And it makes them look like it. So if you got a guy that's in the gang, he's active. It makes him look good because he got other resources to send him to now this the ones in his game they looking at him different too they having a different respect for him because he helped the homie who everybody knew that this wasn't cut for him and he sent him somewhere else so it works both ways and one of the things that I, I like to point out is this lifestyle is a psychological addiction what happens is they get addicted to the fast money. They get addicted to the prestige, the status. They get addicted to how some of these young girls like these bad boys and they go after the bad boys because he's getting in trouble and and he'll stand up for them. And then some of them, they feel strong. They feel protected because he's aggressive. And these guys, they get caught up in that. It's a psychological addiction. There's a program that I was a part of. I was a facilitator called CGA. It's called Criminal and Gangs Anonymous, right? And it really breaks down the psychological addiction of this culture. Right. That is such an important aspect of it, because when you start doing something for a while, then it becomes habit. And then, you know, you get further enough down the road, you don't even necessarily remember what's the first thing that actually got you going. In fact, I don't even know if there is, you know, we hear about the classic rival of Crips and Bloods. I mean, does anyone even know what the original thing of why they don't like each other? It depends. So, for instance, one of the things I'm like a historian when it comes to our culture and I'm very big on this is one of the things that this is one of the ways I'm able to get the attention of some of my younger homies, the young gang members, is I go to them and I ask them, why are you a part of this? What is it that you know about this? Do you know the history? And then when I start telling them the history and how we even got to where why are you killing this dude? And how come you killing this dude? And I always use an example. I always tell him, you know, at some point we have to have 
peace. Now, peace is a word that gang members don't like because to them, peace means weak. So sometimes I'll say we need to stand down at some point. I tell them to stand down so we can stand up and mm -hmm. bring the opportunity and resources to the community. I'm still saying peace, but I'm not telling them the word peace. You got you know, you to talk in the language people can hear. Most definitely. And when they can hear it, they process it differently. That's why a lot of times I always ask people, it's not what I say is what you hear me say. That's what's more important. Yes. Because I can say something to you. And if you hear something different than what I'm saying, and then that means that you're going to process and we're going to communicate differently. Right. It's so good. And, you know, one of my my favorite titles that you have is the violence interrupter. And mm. I'd love for you to, to kind of explain a little bit more about what you actually do, because you literally put yourself in the line of fire when tempers are up, triggers are, are out there. How do you help people deal with their triggers? And you're not necessarily trying to get people out of the gang. You're having them really look at what are their reactions and how they're responding and so when you're in the mix and people are like, you know, tempers are up and people want to get that retaliation and that, that quick fix and they're in that, that psychological push forward to do what they think that they have to do, right? That, that respect that comes within with those things. What are you doing as a violence interrupter to basically get into the beehive of all of that and to shift that energy? So the first thing about the title violence interrupter, our whole objective is to find ways to just interrupt the violence. So right now in the city where I do the work at, there's a war between the Hispanics and blacks. Now we'll be here all day going into details on how this war got started. Sure. So the objective in the midst of this is to come up with strategies on how to get people to go to their perspective corners, right? Now, in honesty, when these type of things happen, there's real, like you can't just jump in the middle of it because they will look at you differently. Like they just shot the homie so-and-so and they just shot this dude and you telling us to not do something, then they're going to look at you like, what's up with you, right? right? So you can't just tell them to not do something. Right. It's all about strategies. It's all about coming here and saying, OK, you shot at him and he shot at you. Now, if no one is dead, you've already shown that you're not willing to back down. So you've made your point. Right. So now that you've made your point and you got the streets hot because the police is arresting everybody behind these shootings. They're arresting everybody, they're putting people in jail. So now you finna lose some of your frontline soldiers. And they're going to be in prison. And they can't even sit and protect your hood. Now, those are just conversations I have with them strategically to get them, because usually when you can get them to calm down, everybody goes back to their corners. They go back to talking to their girlfriends. They, some of them got jobs. They go back to working. Right. You got to get that cooling off period so you can get some peace in the community. And so that's one of the strategies of interrupting violence. There's a few of them. Right. That's okay. one of the conversations we have, you know, in addition to reaching out to the people in the prison system. Like I was saying earlier, we have connections with some of them and we have somebody reach out to them and say, we need you to send word out here to your people to tell them to stand down because right. we can't bring no jobs. We can't bring no resources. No one wants to invest into this area until we can get the violence down. Right. And when you start talking like that, 
they're thinking about coming out of prison. Will we have jobs for them when they come out? But if we can't get it going now, we won't have nothing for you when you come home. Right. Right. So that that cooperation between those who are in and those who are out and how that looks like. You and I have talked to before about survival instincts and the brain can be in a very different place. When you're in survival, you're not thinking clearly. This is the whole, hey, let's go get them and just kill everybody and be done with it, right? And then there's something called like the executive state where you have a clear head, you're looking at consequences, you look at your commitments and what you're doing. And so you have to be able to look at those things. Can you talk a little bit about survival instincts and how that actually works in the brain? So the part of the brain that It's called the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that stores your life experiences. It recalls them, your trauma. It triggers your survival instincts, that part of the brain. The interesting thing about the amygdala is that it's like the parts of the brain. It's a muscle. That part of the brain has been functioning and building. That muscle is so strong that until you start questioning that reaction, until you start saying, okay, why am I reacting? Until you start questioning, it automatically just kicks in and then you go straight into your survival instincts. The interesting thing also about the amygdala is that when you recall anything that resembles trauma, you are actually react in that moment. It doesn't distinguish between time. So you might react to something that happened to you 10 years ago, but the emotional connection that you have to it you'll react to it in that moment because the amygdala, when it recalls it, is not distinguishing between times. So you might just react in a violent way, an angry way, until you can stop and take a look at why. That's why you question the reaction. Mm -hmm. It takes practice. You have to consciously take a look at why or what is directly associated to why you're reacting that way. And that's a challenge because I remember when I was in a, in a training, when I first came home from prison, Dan asked me to come to a training. I went to the training and in that training, Dan said, okay, Mark, will you be willing to consider this? And I said, no, I don't want to consider it because if I consider it, it's going against what I want to believe, what I want to be right about. So I said, no, I'm not going to consider that. And then Dan said, well, if you're unwilling to consider that game over, He said, there's no reason for us to be here. He said, because if you can't take a look at something else and just consider it, then we can't go any further. And that's just how it is. Like if people are unwilling to consider something else other than what they think that it is, that's the interruption part of that thinking. You interrupt that thinking and you do that the phenomenologic reporting where you pull yourself up out of that moment and take a look at yourself and your decision. Right. This is such an important conversation because, you know, some people may be listening to this and go, okay, I'm not involved in a gang. I'm OG. I'm not really, you know, fully in it right now. And how does this really affect the big picture and the big culture? And is exactly what's happening right now. Like if you look at the big picture where, you know, people are, you know, there's censorship, people aren't considering what other people are thinking. There's a lot of dividing that's happening and it becomes a distraction, right? There's all these things that 
People aren't even taking a moment to consider what is true for themselves. It's like there's a lot of things being spoon fed to people, like there's Mm -hmm. no other options and there aren't any choices. It's just a different side of the coin of what's going on about it. And you and I have also talked about like the fragility of people, right? About how fragile they are right now and how literally it's like, what do they stand for? And what are the things that they're doing to consider about who they are? And it's interesting to see, you know, you can use it as far as the example within gangs, but just also in in the greater greater culture. What's your stance on people being so fragile? There was a term, I think I was driving from Santa Rosa back to uh, Southern area, Los Angeles, Dan and I, and we were listening to a, a guy that called, it's a term that he created called anti-fragilism. And it's a word that he created. And so anti-fragilism is people who's been either guarded or hasn't been exposed to challenges. And some of them have been, the people are constantly rescuing them from challenges and they don't have the, the proper mechanism to respond to challenges. And when they see themselves facing challenges, they kind of just break down to it or they allow it to break them down. Even the challenge of just using an example of the forcing people to get vaccinated, Right. So in the United States, you know, we really haven't had no real challenges like these. I mean, in the past, there was vaccinations, mandatory vaccinations, but this is a little different, right? And people are just falling to that, just refusing to do show any resistance. It's fragile. Just, okay, the government right. said do it, let's do it, you know? Right. Well, and there's also the distinction, right? Because, you know, people are like, oh, we've had vaccinations forever. However, this is an experimental one, right? We have no idea what the ramifications of these things are. And since when did a vaccination get tied to who you hang out with? What do you Mm -hmm. do? I mean, that's like saying like, oh, what sexually transmitted diseases do you have? You can't work here if you have this. I mean, it's like the ripple effect of that is crazy. And for people just to be like, oh, okay, that's just the next thing to have happen and not to really go like, oh, did you consider how this is? And whether or not, and and you have also talked about, you know, we're not pro or against vax. We're pro-choice that you get to choose what happens to your body and what you are doing and what that actually looks like. But it's a very interesting thing that's happening that People aren't even really taking a moment to consider how that may affect them or their family or the the community. It's like if they're being told to do something, who's actually making those decisions for yourself? And, and, you know, when they said to me that I couldn't go into one of these favorite places I go into, it's called Barcade, where I can have a drink and play arcade machines. And they said, because I, I can't show my card from being vaccinated. And I really felt it. Like, I was like, OK, wait a minute. Hold up you're not going to allow me to enter here because I haven't been vaccinated. So you're telling me that my movement is restricted based on me not doing something that you are telling me to do. And I just felt some type of way about that. Like I really felt violated when they told me that and it angered me and people are in automatic reaction because they want to just survive. Right. And they're just automatically reacting to it. Okay. I'm going to do it. And I get it. I understand I mean, like you said, we're not pro-vaccination or deep or not getting vaccinated, right? It's about choices. And that's one of the most powerful things that I've learned in my transition is that I have choices and I refuse to just allow myself to be put in a box and saying that these are the only choices that I have to have access to make. With these young people, 
in the gang culture, that's the way they think. They okay, we can't do anything but this. And now that we, I'm bringing these resources, getting them jobs, getting them different things to do. I think we help over 450 people get jobs already, and some of them are in supervisor positions. So now I can send people to them to get jobs. And so those are the type of things that I'm committed to doing in my community and abroad, you know, in other states and other communities, if they need me to come, I'll bring my, you know, expertise to other states and other communities. Right. I I love it. I I love your passion and your commitment to your, your greater community and just what you stand for and the fire that you walk through to get there. I respect you and your walk. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, you know, you and I could talk all day, and I know that people are going to want to stay in contact with you and and what you're up to. How can they do that? So I do have a website. Uh, Hopefully, if you can post it over there for me. I'll post all your links. Okay. And then I have a phone number. My phone number, I think you may have that is 909-450-9810. You could always contact me there. My email is PBCG project at Gmail. You can always email me. You can go to my website where I have a link where you can put in your number and you can put in a comment and you'll send hit send and it comes straight to my email and I'll be able to communicate with you that way. Perfect. Sounds great. And you know, as you know, our, our theme for, for this year is people who are being a force for good. So Mark, our final words here, how would you like to share how you're being a force for good in the world? My force for good is standing with hard to reach individuals and giving them access to tools that transform their lives where they become contributes to society where they help build a community. Individual who once destroyed their community or contribute to the deterioration of their community are now, I'm working with them closely to have the tools to build their community up. Wonderful. So, so great. I just want to reach out to our listeners that are out there. If you have any questions of either myself or Mark, you know, whatever platform you're on, please put in the comments, tag both of us. We're happy to support you, get you any further resources that you have. This is a greater, deeper conversation. There's many ways that we're being divided in the world right now. And, you know, it's a good opportunity to look at, you know, what are your triggers? What are the things that are happening? And, thinking that you don't have any choice. And if you take anything away from today, know that you always have a choice. That's the beauty of of being here in America is that we have a constitution, we have rights, we have ways that we can do things. And you want to be able to stand up for those things, you know, be that anti-fragile person, right? That you actually are, are a positive contributor to the world as Mark has shared here today. So if you've not already subscribed, please do that. Share this to people so they can hear these positive messages that they can have an experience of having more choice in their life because that's really what's going to have us continue with the foundations of our of our forefathers of having freedoms in our life because that's important to know that we have choice. So until we connect again, live your spa life. Bye for now. Your host and spa life curator, Diane Halfman, wants you to know you can download her free guide to start living your spa life right now. Go to dianehalfman.com and click on the link for the nine secrets to step into your spa life. Now, live your spa life where accomplishment and harmony coexist.